Hello and welcome to Army of Crime, the internet's only podcast. I am here with my co-host, Matt. Hello. And my name is Dustin. And on this podcast, uh, this season, we've been discussing some works in the sequential image art form, also known as funny books or comic novels. This episode, we are going to discuss an adaptation. So this is entitled H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, adapted by Go Tanabe. Um, this is obviously an adaptation of the famous novella at the mountains of madness and it's in a uh, two volume as published in english in a two volume set is that so far is that accurate matt uh so far no i don't think we'll need to issue any corrections later yeah okay so now i don't actually think that i was familiar with the mountains of madness i have read some lovecraft but not by no means uh a completist so this was all somewhat new to me, though, of course, I'm familiar with the general outline of the ancient evil gods and so on and so forth. But so, Matt, what was your what's your previous experience with this story at the Mountains of Madness? Uh, yeah, so I have read it, read the story before. I've read uh, I, I would not claim to be I mean, read all of Lovecraft, but I've read like a, I would guess at least 90%, like the, the overwhelming majority uh, of Lovecraft stuff I have read. I have a number of collections of it. So I, I do like um, Lovecraft. And At the Mountains of Madness is kind of, I mean, a lot of people probably say it's his best. First of all, he usually writes a lot of short things. Um, he doesn't have a lot of longer works. So as you mentioned, it's kind of a short novel or like a novella. Um, it kind of sums up a lot of his kind of themes and ideas, I think. So in many ways, it's probably a very good, uh, representation of the best of like why he's kind of a big deal or, or why people find it so interesting. Okay. Um, there, there obviously there are things of Lovecraft. I mean, it's kind of a, he's kind of a weird guy. I mean, he kind of occupies. This you could weird say that niche. again. Well, yeah. Uh, but like he occupies this very like weird niche in culture. Like, can you really think of anyone who has this weird like name recognition the way he does. I mean, maybe someone like, like, you know, like Edgar Allan Poe, but like, there's like Cthulhu, like plushies and like bumper stickers. I mean, it's a very odd kind of, um, yeah, it is. It is spot strange. that he's like staked out in culture, which of course he's almost entirely not responsible for because he, uh, you know, the story was written almost a century ago and it's kind of continued to spin out into this whole, you know, Lovecraft universe. Um, and, Obviously, the guy himself, he was, you know, he's kind of racist. Well, I shouldn't say kind of. He's racist. Uh, he's misogynist. He's a lot of things. And he has a lot of kind of detestable views on everything. But you actually don't really get that in At the Mountains of Madness because it is a story about a handful of explorers going to Antarctica. So, so you don't get the evils of race mixing. Right. Or the one. evils. He's also a big fan of the evils of like uh backwoods country people i guess is a very strong mistrust of you know like poor rural people um immigrants uh you know sexual deviants of all kinds yeah so there's a lot but you don't really get that in at the mountains of madness and i think it's probably why it's one of the stories of his that has some of the best name recognition because you get a lot of the interesting stuff um and just 
I mean, probably not because of anything he did on purpose, but just by the nature of the story taking place in Antarctica, you, you don't really have, have to get burdened by a lot of the other stuff uh, that we would probably wish he wasn't so deep into, right? Like the xenophobia and whatever else. Okay, so at the Mountains of Madness, the uh, story here is, like you mentioned, it's a Antar Antarctic expedition that's, and it takes place in the early 20th century. Well, so, right, so the original story, um, the, the adaptation uh, takes a little liberties. I mean, obviously it's an adaptation, so it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, the original story is the Professor Dyer recounting the expedition. So I think it's meant to take place you know, somewhat contemporaneously, but he's recounting something that happened many years ago. Okay. Um, and they, they don't really follow that framing device necessarily in the adaptation, which is fine. That's just a framing device. And because right. most of Lovecraft's stories um, are first person, or a lot of them are first person, like this is what happened to me, and you, you know, you're with the narrator. It's kind of a very Edgar Allan Poe thing, right? You're the narrator, the unreliable narrator descending into madness. Um, so, but for the adaptation, they, they dispense with that kind of like first person framing. Okay, so anyway, the story was written in 1931, but and it's it's set in this uh, the milieu of early 20th century Arctic exploration and involves a team of researchers from Arkham's Miskatonic University, which is a frequent uh, place setting for Lovecraft's stories, which I believe is meant to be sort of a stand-in for like Boston, and they go to the Antarctic to uh, explore and do some research. And one of the teams of explorers discovers a uh, bizarre pitch black mountain range in which there is a cave and inside the cave, there are things which perhaps mere mortal man is not meant to see. Yes, yeah. Um, and so as far as this adaptation goes, I would give it, you know, two thumbs up. It's pretty amazing. I would. Yeah, would you would agree with me? I, I I would think yes. Well, yes. Or do you have issues? It, I liked it quite a bit. You know, the the one thing I would say is that so, and I don't know. I mean, it's kind of the story is almost a hundred years old, so I don't know if we really have to be too concerned with spoilers. But basically, what happens is the the first part is kind of like the setup where this team discovers stuff, and they discover these weird creatures and they bring out the weird creatures from the cave and start like dissecting them in that uh typical way that people do in science fiction stories where they're like here's a weird evil monster i'm gonna stick my head in its mouth and see what happens and then uh they all mysteriously die and then the main what what i think is like the main meat of the story is the protagonist professor dyer uh investigating what happened to this first camp um, and that second part I found to be much stronger than the first part because maybe I'm just a dum-dum and I was not familiar with the first part or with the story in general. But in this first part, there's a lot of characters and a lot of names and sort of like the back and forth of, um, you know, the different like teams of explorers. But then in the second part, you kind of get um, it's mainly about them uh, exploring this ancient like ruined city inside this black mountain range and sort of them learning about the history of this mountain range and the history of these like alien species on planet earth. And that stuff I found to be very compelling. So overall, I do think it's very strong. And I think that we would perhaps both agree that the main appeal 
of this is the uh, the artwork, which is interesting too because oh, for sure. it's, yeah, it's kind of like I know some of these things are described by Lovecraft in his stories, right? But I feel like part of the appeal of the Lovecraftian horror stories are always the things which cannot be described, right? Like the horrors that you know you your imagination just has to like fill in the blank. So I think in setting out to like visually depict all of these things is sort of a very perilous endeavor, right? Because if you goof it up, you know, you've kind of like taken something which worked well in prose and then now you've given it shape and given it like a definite image and now maybe it looks silly, right? Oh yeah, for sure. But, and I think he does do a tremendous job depicting it. Um, it it's a little different. Um, you're certainly right that part of the the interesting part of Lovecraft is, is is that it's not a visual medium because he'll say things are like, um, you know, non-Euclidean ge- geometry or whatever. Like, what does that even mean? You know, like the indescribable vistas of blackness. Or you know, it's it's um works better as a sort of prose to set your imagination going, uh, than you know, literally describing what something looks like. But of course, we now live in an age where you can type, you know, elder things into Google image search and find out pretty much what everyone thinks they look like. So it's a weird thing that I think it works. I think he does a good job. I I agree with you that it could turn out badly, especially if it ended up looking cartoonish, because some of it are fairly, you know, involved. The elder things themselves are kind of odd looking, certainly. Um, And I think that's I mean, as part of the Lovecraft, you know, idea, right, that they don't look humanoid, but they could look weird. They could look comical in, in the wrong in the wrong hands. But uh, yeah, the art is tremendous. Like the, the black and white art um, is great. Like the, the vistas of like Antarctica, uh, the elder things, the different, you know, the other kind of creatures, um, the the black mountain range, uh, the the city that they find, you know, at the South Pole, yeah. like all of that is just great. And like the part where they're flying in on the plane and you get like the mirage in the sky, like the double mirage of like the black city. I mean, it's just awesome stuff. Yeah. And I think he does a great thing, which is a very like a, a comics thing that you can do where, you know, alternating panel sizes in, in order to create the sense of awe where like, you'll turn the page and then there'll be like a double splash page that will like dwarf the previous story in showing a mountain range or, you know, the the vastness of these things, which is something that a comic book can actually do really well. Like, you know, when they first find the crumbling black city inside the mountain range, you get these two double splash pages in a row, which give you this like detailed panorama of this like crazy thing that you know it works that list you know it like overwhelms you with like the detail and the bizarreness of it and so that kind of stuff is like really effective like when he gets shows you all of like the alien creatures in like one page um yeah or you get you recount the history of the alien race and it's like just these epic scenes of like hundreds of aliens all bustling about it. it. I mean, it's like intense to look at. It's like, yeah. So what they, what they discover is that there are, they're called the elder things. Is that what the elder called? things? Yep. Yep. And like I said, this is all, you know, like video games and stuff. You can type it into Google image search. Yeah. The elder, the elder things. 
Which are kind um, of look a, a like a lot of somewhat like... similar sounding names in Lovecraft, right? Because you have the ancient ones and the elder things. But yes, continue. Um, anyway, so what? Yeah, what they discover is that in the distant past on Earth, there was this like this alien colony of what are called the elder things, who look kind of like a uh, like a plant with a starfish head and like weird tentacles for roots, um, and they created these things called the Shogoths, which are basically like giant amorphous blobs that are like their slaves. Um, and then it's basically goes through like the rise and downfall of their civilization. And these elder things are, are what um, the massacred research team discovers and pulls out and starts dissecting. Yeah. So, you know, of course it gives this... you that um, perspective where as you learn about the elder things, it's like, you go from being horrified by them to almost, you know, sympathetic because what you're dealing with is not a malevolent race so much as just like a race of explorers that treat the earth very much like, you know, earthlings treat other continents that they explore, which is to say, I mean, maybe you would uh, ascribe some level of malevolence to that, but they're not like, um, you know, they're interested in like research and stuff. They're not just like evil creatures in, bent on destroying the universe. Right. And and that's what's interesting about that, that Lovecraftian. I think it really captures that Lovecraftian, like the cosmic horror, which is the horror not at the creatures like coming to get you so much as just trying to signify how tiny and insignificant humans are, you know, in, in the cosmos. Right. There's actually a really great... Uh, sequence in here where it like pulls out to outer space we were like looking at antarctica from space which i think is awesome like it just shows you how small they are you know there's like stranded on this continent and then it like literally zooms out into outer space and you're looking at antarctica from like a satellite's perspective yeah but that, it, that it, cosmic horror yeah because the the elder things are not evil per se uh but they they don't understand with us or they don't understand us and it's interesting because so often we see aliens that are just some kind of take on something we have on Earth. And what's interesting is he's giving you an alien species, multiple alien species, I guess, that are so alien, like like they're so completely different. How would you even communicate with them? How would you have any kind of understanding? So even though they're not malevolent and we are just curious, it's going to inevitably turn out badly. Like there's no good way that it could turn out because how would you even talk to them? How would you even come to an understanding? And Do they communicate psychically, or I, I yeah, there's um through like actually a really good question. I'm not sure, but like just imagine how different our cultures would be, right? Like, what would you, how would you explain something to it? Um, as he mentions though in there that they're not trying, you know, they they are just alarmed. They'd be just as alarmed by the presence um, of humans running about like hairy little ape creature things uh, as we would be by the plant starfish tentacle guys. Yeah, and that and that's that like cosmic horror because it, I feel like it does reach a point of horror where you're like, like this is, it, it's interesting, right? Because they're not like hunting them. It's not you know the comparison that I think of uh, most often to movies it would be like John Carpenter's The Thing, which obviously kind of borrows I think some of this setup. Right. Right. It's very much. Yeah. Like an Antarctic horror. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and which is a side note, it's kind of weird that Lovecraft has never made as big of a splash into film um, as into other mediums. I'm not really sure 
exactly the reasons for that. But John Carpenter's The Thing is, is, I think, very heavily inspired by this. But he takes a more straightforward route because the horror is literally that the thing you found in the Antarctic just wants to eat you, right? And this is a little bit more of a subtle thing because it has to kind of build on you over time. Because once you get over the fact that, okay, they're not really just trying to eat us, you know, you kind of go through some stages, like you said. And then in the end, you do reach the point of like the cosmic horror of the uh, we are tiny and insignificant. And one day, if all of these creatures decided to, you know, they might just flatten our whole civilization, uh, not because they hate us, but because they want to build, you know, a parking lot or something like. Yeah, the horror comes from the realization that we do not live in a human being centric universe. Right, right. And that's and such that an interesting they could, like, concept. Our, in... that and that they these beings whose existence we've just discovered could, uh, you know, sweep our anthill in into the trash can just because they felt like it, without right. even meaning it as a, you know, harsh or malevolent thing to do. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's such an interesting take for sci-fi, science fiction, and fantasy. Because so often, um, I think human-centric, you use the word human-centric, uh, is, is the right word because it is often very human-centric, right? You have these big cosmic entities or, or supernatural things going on, but it's always somehow based on humanity. And the the thing that Lovecraft does is that it probably gives it its staying power is that that niche of being like all this weird stuff is out there, but it really has nothing to do with us. You might like stumble onto it by accident but it's not waiting for you and it doesn't really have anything to do with you. It's probably bad for your health to stumble on it, but not because it doesn't like you just because it's, it's, you know, you, you can't figure it out. You can't understand it. Yeah. And, and in many ways, it's weird that it's such a great adaptation of Lovecraft that I feel like kind of captures that is of course from like, you know, a, a manga Japanese, Japanese comic. Um, but it's definitely one of the better like Lovecraft adaptations that I'm familiar with. He, have you read, uh, Go Tanabe's other he did he has another book of Lovecraft short story adaptations which I have not read. I actually haven't read either, but I would be very very curious to read it. Yeah. So did the Elder Ones? Did I miss this, or did the do the Elder Ones like seed human life on Earth as well? Yeah. So the the implication is that life exists on Earth only because they created it like in a chemistry lab. Okay. And that their their time scale is so much vaster than ours that we're just like a blip to them. And of course, towards the end, you get, you know, a guest, guest spot by uh, Cthulhu and some of the other alien races. Yes, the octopus Cthulhu creatures have a war with the Elder Things. And the Elder Things themselves have a slave uprising where they're, the creatures they created to do their bidding, like, rise up and, like, go nuts and start killing everything yeah the shogoth yeah which right. are described and... as beings made up of there's like an odd quote here where it's like they're and there's the giant albino penguins yeah and those those are in the story I, I remember that very clearly the giant albino penguins i don't remember how long ago i originally read this but i remember for some reason i remember the albino penguins yeah, and it's interesting because I mean, this is another thing that this does a great job with because he does he does change the narrative a little by not having it be done in retrospect, and I, I think that makes it better. You know, like like that prof that Professor Dyer is the main character, um, and like the idea that there's something horrifying 
you know, and, and you were better off not going to the Antarctic to find it, right? He, the the new expectation. This is this is at the beginning of the original story, but at the end of this story, that there's new expedition expeditions or something, and he he doesn't want them to go. And it's it's interesting to me because, like I said, there's not something specific that we're trying to avoid, right? It's not like the creatures there are all trying to chomp off our heads. It's just a general sense of like we don't belong there. It's just not for us. They might decide, I suppose, to roam over the earth chomping off our heads, but that's not like their main goal. But it's just the general idea like this is a place we found in the world where humans should not go. Well, there is one uh, Shogoth creature who does seem angry and wanting to chomp off people's heads. Right, right. And that, but that's if you go all the way in there and go underground. Um, I mean, it's not abundantly clear if the Shogoths would like follow you back to civilization or something. So at the end, they might, when, they're, when they're fleeing the city, one character looks back and is driven insane by what he sees. Yeah. Is there, do we know, does anybody know what he sees, or is this meant to be this enduring mystery of horror? Uh, that's a good question. Because I thought I read somewhere that it's supposed to be Yog sothoth who is both the key and the gate. Okay. Like uh, we saw a glimpse of one of the ancient ones. Yeah, of some like other one of the gods. Yeah, because as they're in here, as they're in the deep bowels where there's the Shogoth creature, there is like a gate, like some kind of portal, if you recall. Yeah, yeah. And there's this word Talikali, or yeah, Talikali, Talikali, which seems to be like some chant of this like evil god or something. Yeah. But I mean, it's part of the appeal of the stories that, you know, it's like you're just he is on. They have like uncovered like two percent of the knowledge of the universe. But that two percent is enough to drive any of anyone mad. Yeah. And that's well, that's the thing with that's weird again, again, about the spot that Lovecraft now occupies in culture, because as I understand it, when he was writing this, none of this was like actually like thought out in some kind of um, coherent like system or whatever. Like he was just making stuff that was like weird and like kind of creepy, right? But now you could go on, you know, the wiki or whatever and read the whole, whatever all of it's supposed to mean. Um, and as as he's writing it, it's not necessarily supposed to meant to mean much of any. It's just meant to sound creepy, you know. Well, yes, because other authors after his death picked up these concepts and continued to explore them, and that's why I think they've retain so much popularity did you share my concern with the uh slow beginning of the story or were you a person being a person who was familiar with this story were you not uh bothered by that i don't know if that's related i almost don't wonder if the story would be stronger if you uh kept everything from profess i i Professor Dyer's perspective. I appreciate the change in framing device because the, and, and this is a, a convention I think Lovecraft used a lot was the idea like I'm relating to you something that happened to me a long time ago. And, and I, I think the present, like the, the fact that it's happening presently is a little stronger. You know, Professor Dyer is like doing it as we're, as we're seeing it, not recounting it later. Uh, but I don't wonder if it might've been stronger Still, if we kept on him and we just learned bits and pieces of what was happening to Professor Lake late, later, right? Like they come upon the camp and like piece it together. The way he chooses to do it now is we actually follow Professor Lake for a while. And then 
we skip a bunch so we don't know what happened to them and then we have professor dyer kind of fill in the blanks right yeah it's actually and not clear for quite a while who if anyone is actually like the protagonist of this story right yeah because there's a portion where it kind of switches over and professor lake is in charge and he's basically the guy he's the guy who we know something bad is going to happen to because he's the guy whose answer to everything is like, we must push on. We must explore further. We must right, go when farther. When you find the creepy like, cave like, with that's... the weird creatures in it, he's like, yeah. no, we must cut cut them open and see what's inside them. And Yeah, right, right. He's right. He's the guy who's like, I'm going to stick my head inside this thing and see what it does. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I could see that. I could see, like, because, in, in, you know, in the beginning, too, it talks about a film adaptation, and there's always been people trying to make a film adaptation, and obviously John Carpenter's The Thing is almost like a very, very loose adaptation in and of itself. And you could see, like, if you were going to film this, that you would want to cut, keep it on Professor Dyer the whole time and have us only piece together what happened to Lake, right, from, like, diaries or something, or from, like, maybe film like film segments that they might take um, as documentation, something like that. I, I think it still works because he cuts away right before so we don't find out what actually happens to them. I almost thought, yeah. um, not knowing how close of an adaptation it was, I almost thought that maybe, like, yeah, Professor Lake would end up being the main character or something like that. So you, you, you are right. There is a point where um, the story takes kind of a long digression to, to have Professor Lake kind of find a lot of stuff out for us. Yeah, which um, it took me, I mean, obviously you have to build, you can't just like start out, you know, like with a elder creature, like eating someone on the first page. Um, but it, it took me a little while to get into this just because of the of that with, you have these multiple, all these characters on this expedition, all like doing different things through the first part. And then the second part is more about the who becomes the protagonist, Professor Dyer kind of discovering the horrible secrets of the universe. But, you know, overall, I would say as a two volume story, I think that HP, <laughs> Go Tanabe's HP Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness is a very strong work. And I think like we've been mentioning the extremely detailed black and white line art is I think a huge reason for that. And I'm not always necessarily a fan of extremely detailed comic book art because I feel like sometimes it can end up feeling very uh, like dry and very still, you know, because these uh, comic panels are not meant to be something that you would just like hang on a wall in a museum right there. These are like, stepping stones in a story that should be conveying some kind of emotion or an idea or just moving a story along. And I feel like that he very effectively does that even with, um, without, with giving you the uh, extreme amount of detail in these, like the mountain ranges and the cities and the creatures. Yeah. That make like this the extremely vivid. Yeah. The flashbacks to like the elder things. Yeah. Like it's a very, um, is a very different artist, obviously, but like, you know, Jack Kirby was one who would always use, you know, later in his career, especially would use like double splash pages to like very good effect. 
And it's a weird comparison, but I think that this comic book actually uses double splash pages to a similarly very effective uh, use in the way that, you know, he can go like a normal page and then you like hit you with like something epic, which is something that works best in a comic book because like in prose or in a film, it's much harder to like create that same effect. You know, in film, I guess you could cheat and like change the aspect ratio or something, or, you know, obviously there's other things you could do, yeah. but you know, in Cut out the audio or something would be like a, yeah, but in like playing to the strengths of the comic book medium, I think he like very effectively stuns you with these sort of like horrifyingly beautiful images, which are like almost, you know, they're like disgusting and weird and like almost sexual sometimes with like all these like uh, alien creatures like fighting and killing each other and stuff. Yeah, and all the t all the tentacles yeah. going every which direction. And it, it's a different, it's a weird, it's a weird thing of Lovecraft, right? Because he, he, a lot of it is described, he actually does describe the elder things in a, a, fair, a fair amount of detail. Yeah, um, and, but, and the, yeah, the, the creatures in here are actually, I think, described, whereas, you know, some of the other ones are more meant to be left to the imagination. Yeah, and well, and like the cities and stuff, you know, he, he's a big fan of just being like, and it was too vast for the human mind to comprehend. And as you were kind of mentioning, it's a tall order to like accurately depict that visually. But I think he does it. I think he, I think he pulls it off. You know, like when you have the little tiny plane flying through the sky with like yeah. the vast vastness around it. Right. It's like a, a mouse on like a air a paper airplane exploring a city. You know. Yeah. It makes me I, I, wish that these volumes and did you read this digitally or did you have the paperback volume? I bought the paperbacks. Okay. I, I, I was thinking I wish they were bigger. Yeah, because this is published in what's, a, you know, the common like sort of size for uh, manga in America, which is like these like and I assume elsewhere as well. These like smaller, you know, paperback volumes. And it does make me wish that this was published in a larger size because for some of this art, it would be great to see it at like comic book size or even larger you right know, like like an artist's edition or something of this would be right uh, and you were saying like stunning. you know it's not meant to just be something you want to hang on your wall but you could hang some of this on your wall i mean if you were a weirdo yeah yeah if you were into weird stuff if yeah, you wanted sure. to like scare scare away people coming over to your house yeah so here's a question matt do you think that this is the best hp lovecraft adaptation I mean that's a hard thing to quantify for as if we're if we're limiting it to comic books, I would say it's definitely at the top of the pile. I can't think of something else. I'm not that much familiar with as familiar with Lovecraft, so I don't know that I'd really say I know and this is something that we might end up discussing on a later episode, and it's not really a direct adaptation either, but the uh Alan Moore and Jason Burroughs comic book Providence. Yeah. Is another uh pretty magnificent work but it's probably in this category more of lovecraft homage than adaptation yeah and we will do that in a later episode um but it's it's not really an adaptation it, yeah. it's kind of a different animal right because he's trying to adapt this specifically and he uses generous helpings of like text from the story um you know for captions and stuff it's you know it's really what it is is another entry and what we were talking about of other people continuing to play in the same universes that he created. 
Right, which is something actually to his credit, to Lovecraft's credit, he intentionally like knew that was a thing and was perfectly happy with it and, and wanted people to, to just run with whatever, you know, weird stuff he came up with. Yeah. And this I think it's a little bit different frame of mind, um, honestly, from people today, because back then everyone was writing under with no assumption that, you know, your heirs would own your all every word you wrote, you know, in perpetuity. That well, like, these were published, I believe, in like pulp magazines. Yeah. Like, so they were, I can only imagine that he, that, you know, like most all of the people who wrote for those kind of magazines, they assumed you'd cash the paycheck and then people would read it once and throw it in the trash and that would be the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit different, I think, mindset. And I, I don't know what public domain law was back then, but I'm going to go on a limb and say it was much, much shorter than like life of author or something so there well, was didn't no... he intentionally well i guess it probably wouldn't have been up to him really because it would they would have been owned by these magazines but yeah like, maybe... i mean him and other writers all like referenced each other's things they were in yeah. they were you know intentionally creating um a shared universe which is now the big thing that you know hollywood studios are all trying to like uh jam into existence or whatever but like him true, um, yeah. robert e howard clark ashton smith all kind of uh, dabbled with each other's concepts and sometimes it's just you know like name dropping but but just the idea that they all like he actually doesn't he mention hyperborea in this i believe they mention hyperborea by name as like a lost continent yeah uh, which is of course where conan the barbarian takes place and i and it's also in hellboy right something that we've talked about uh many times yeah for sure. So, any other thoughts on Go Tanabe's H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness? Or in uh, Lovecraft in general? Well, you know, I really, I do like Lovecraft. Um, he, he is a, a problematic, a problematic fave, let's, let's say, because, yeah, there's a lot of racism, um, misogyny, um, classism, xenophobia. Um, I don't know if I missed any there. In some of his works, you know, he was this kind of New England wasp guy who very much lived up to that in like every possible way you could think of, like the, the you know the negative stereotype of like a, a Boston, you know, like um, like snooty guy in a lot of his outlooks. But that that cosmic horror thing that he hit on, I think that's a very it, it, it's like a it's enough of a take on like a sci-fi fantasy uh, horror blending. I think it's a good it's a good uh, little niche, and I, I do like Lovecraft as a general as a general concept. And I think when you get like a manga adaptation like this, you're really getting something that captures the good parts of it. Well, as always, out there, please smash that subscribe button. Yeah, and. You can, after you smash the subscribe button through your podcasting application of choice, you can visit us at armyofcrime.com or you can do what else could people do? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Army of Crime and Dustin is at Dustin4444. That's true. You could do that. Throw some, throw some five stars our way on your uh, pod catcher of choice. That's also something that a listener of this podcast could do. As always, as always, stay alive out there, people. Don't don't go to the Antarctic.
Was that a elder thing creeping up behind you? That that was my four year old. 